You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. And good morning, everyone. Once again, welcome back for another week of our summer sermon series entitled, What Would Jesus Say? A special uh, also shout out to all of you dads out there. Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Anybody got any good dad jokes? Anyone? Anybody? Anybody? I heard one as I was walking in today. Why did the hipster burn his mouth on a meal? Why? Because he ate it before it was cool. (laughs) David Kaiser, shout out. He was here at 9 a.m., so if he watches this later, I'm giving you props. That was a great one. But happy Father's Day to you. Uh, Again, as we continue this summer uh, conversation, this summer dialogue we've been in for the last couple of weeks, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time here in person or if this is the first time you're tuning in online, several, several weeks ago in preparation for the summer, uh, we published a form that gave people an opportunity to submit Some of their biggest questions that they've always had about God, about faith, about Christianity, about religion. Questions that they've always wondered, what would Jesus say about this topic? Or how would Jesus engage this particular issue? Or if Jesus showed up now, like what kind of ancient wisdom would he lend to this modern day problem or topic that we're engaging right now? And so we got a whole bunch of questions submitted, and over the course of these next several weeks, we're going to engage them. Not all of them, but we're going to answer as many of them as we can, as best and as faithfully as we can. And today what we're doing is we're coming to a question that was submitted early in the process, early uh, when the form was first submitted. But when it first came in, I was like, it just, it fascinated me. I loved this question, and this is a question that, quite frankly, I personally have been wrestling with a lot over the course of the last four or five years, which is this. What would Jesus say about where and how to find happiness in this life? There's a lot of different voices out there coming from all kinds of different directions that will tell you, you will find happiness if you just become this, or you just do this, or achieve this. But what would Jesus say about this topic of how to find and genuinely discover a happy life? And I think part of where this question stems from, part of where this question stems from is kind of the state of happiness in our country writ large right now. So in 2021, a survey found this. 2021 was a rough year, but in 2021, a survey found that only 14% of Americans, 14, say they are genuinely happy with their life right now. Uh, For reference, 16% of Americans believe the world is flat, So, um, that ain't a lot. Like, there's more people out there thinking that the world looks like a cookie than who are actually genuinely happy with their existence and with their life right now. So, we got a problem. We got a problem. And so, naturally, the next question is like, so, like, why? Like, why are we struggling as as a species or as a country with finding and cultivating and discovering happiness? And for starters, one thing that's actually super, super important is that scientists estimate that uh, we are actually only in control of 40% of that. 40% of your happiness is within the bounds of your control. 40% you can control through habits and disciplines and mindsets and 
things that you engage in to sort of keep you grounded and happy and joyful in life. But 60% of the things that are affecting your and my ability to be happy every day are beyond your control. You can't touch them. You can't affect them. In the article, they go on to share what these are. These are uh, sometimes our happiness is a byproduct of what's going on in the world. Global-wide pandemics, wars in other countries. Um, It's also a byproduct of how safe we feel in the world. So when mass shootings happen and different things, tragedies happen, natural disasters happen, that impacts our ability to rest and feel joyful and happy. We haven't even touched on, we haven't even scratched the surface on our genetics and how your and my genetics affect our ability to cultivate happiness. And we haven't even talked about mental illness and mental health and how those play a really, really big role in this whole conversation. And so right here at the start, right here at the start, I want to say two things, two things. The first of which is if you are someone who uh, maybe you came into worship today or maybe you tuned into worship today, and if you were honest, you hadn't been that happy with your life lately, the first thing I want to sort of encourage you with is that part of that is okay because part of that you cannot control. Part of your and my happiness is because of factors that you actually can't fix or solve right now. Stressors going on in your job, stressors going on in your relationships or in your parenting, you name it. And so part of what we as the church need to do is normalize the fact that most of of us are experiencing factors beyond our control that impact our ability to walk into this place wearing that Sunday smile, okay? One of the top reasons why people avoid church is because they just went through something that week that put them in a mood that was like, well, I'm not really feeling the whole, like, thing, so I'm just going to stay home, and I'll keep my, like, my sad face at home because I don't want other people to see that. And so we need to normalize that if you are someone here today who maybe you're going through a season where happiness has just been so evasive to you, or maybe you're someone who battles depression on a seasonal or on a chronic basis, Feeling unhappy does not make you a bad person. It definitely does not make you a bad Christian. It makes you normal. It makes you normal. And so that leads to the second thing I want to say here at the start, which is, if so if that's the case, if happiness is like, it's temporal, it's environmental, and as a result of that, it's so fickle and evasive and all those sorts of things, then is this actually the thing we ought to be striving for at all? So I want to take that question that we received and I want to reframe it a bit and I want to ask the question, is happiness actually the goal? Is happiness actually the thing that Jesus would be encouraging and inviting us to pursue in this life or not? And if not, then what? What actually is Jesus calling us? What kind of life is Jesus calling us to pursue? And fortunately for us, Scripture has some wisdom for us on this conversation. So if you brought your Bibles or you have your smart devices and you want to follow along in the scripture passage we're diving into today, return back to our scripture that you heard read by Sally a couple moments ago, John chapter 15. John is one of the Gospels, so it uh, details, it gives a a biographical account of Jesus' life and his teachings and uh, the different things, the miracles that he performed. And where we are in John chapter 15 specifically is we are here getting towards, toward the, it's getting towards the end of the Gospel, so we're getting towards the end of that sort of era of the story. 
And so Jesus, during this particular part of the gospel, he's pulling his disciples and he's uh, having a lot of one-on-one conversations with them. He's having a lot of conversations just with he and them, uh, sort of coaching them and encouraging them and teaching them things that he wants them to go and share with the rest of the world after he's gone. And here in John chapter 15, he names something that we ought to be striving for, but he doesn't use the word happiness. He uses a very different word to describe the thing that we ought to be looking for, searching for, cultivating in this life. You catch that? He doesn't use the word happiness. He uses the word joy. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So this is a very different word with very different implications. In the Greek, the word for joy is chara. You know, like warm up your tonsils uh, all morning to say that one. And so chara is the word that's used here that Jesus uh, talks about. And what's so fascinating about this word is if you do a word study on it, and you sort of look at like what are the other places where this word is used, it's fascinating where it shows up. Because this particular word for joy is the same exact word that's used to describe what the uh, uh, disciples were feeling right after the resurrection. Okay? Right after the resurrection. Check this out. Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 says, So they, they being the disciples, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. It was like a sort of complex cocktail of both fear and joy, right? Luke 24, verses 41 through 43. While in their joy, they were also disbelieving and still wondering. And so it's a super interesting word to describe what these disciples were feeling because uh, in modern day, we would sort of describe this as like this excitement and joy, but like fear and apprehension to not get our hopes up, okay? So the disciples are pumped. They're excited. They're like, yes, he rose from the dead. All of our hope was not in vain. This is amazing. The movement's still alive. And yet I got questions. And... Like, three days ago, like, all of our hopes were dashed, and my life was in the pits, and I was terrified. And so just forgive me if I'm not, like, chomping at the bit. Like, forgive me if I'm a little bit slow to kind of be all in and all joyful because I'm excited, and yet I am also terrified of not having all the things that I believed be thwarted again. Those of you who um, have had this experience yourself, or you know someone and care about someone in your life who's had this experience, um, you know that uh, this is precisely what uh, persons who have had histories with infertility feel. Last year, I had a conversation uh, with a member of our church, and she just shared with me. She said, you know, I'm in this weird state because we had a miscarriage last year, and now I'm pregnant again, and I'm excited, like, I'm, like I'm, I'm, I'm joyful and I'm appreciative, but I'm, like if I'm being honest, Pastor, I'm also terrified. Because I don't, I, this, this has happened before. And to me, what that conversation for me last year did was it crystallized. What is the greatest, most fundamental difference between happiness and joy? Happiness is something you feel. It's environmental, it's temporal, it's evasive, it comes in, it zaps out. Joy, oh, joy is something you have to let in. It's something you have to sometimes discipline and even force and push yourself to let yourself 
experience. Joy is something you have to let into your system and you have to allow it to root out all of the negativity and pessimism and cynicism and skepticism that you've sort of been falling into lately, that the world sort of injects into you every single day. Joy is the thing that you let in to replace that so that you don't become somebody who, when they reach the end of their life, is fundamentally unable to enjoy anything because every time something good came into your life, the first response you had was, well, we'll just wait for the other shoe to drop. Well, you know, it's not perfect. It's got some flaws in it, so I'm not going to really enjoy it. Well, you know, that's great, but it doesn't make up for all the other garbage I've had to go through in life, and so I don't care that this good thing happened. I'm going to focus all my energy on all that. Joy is how you escape becoming that person. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, oh, that's great. I'm all about that. That joy life, come on now. I want some of that. That's great. Um, but hypothetically, asking for a friend, like, how, how, um, how would someone let said joy in? Like, how do you, like, go about, like, practically, like, on the ground, how do you go about practices and things that actually allow it to seep into our system. And fortunately for us, Jesus is also super clear about that. He gives us a whole bunch of things throughout the Gospels to practice, to do, to be about, to experience a more joyful existence. So for example, Jesus says, you want to experience more joy in your life, choose a life of community rather than of isolation. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That joy is found in community instead of living in isolation and loneliness all by yourself. Jesus says there's also joy found in forgiveness to love your enemies instead of bitterness and resentment and holding grudges and keeping record of wrongs. That the joyful life is not in that. It's in the forgiveness and the extension of mercy and compassion to those. Don't, don't deserve it, but need it. Jesus also says uh, that if you want to find joy in this life, live a life that is not just about you. It's not a self-centered life, but a selfless life. Find, find ways in which where you can do work, you can find purpose, you can find calling, you can actually create purpose and calling within your work right now where it's not about you, it's not only about the bottom line, but it's about truly loving your neighbor as yourself. And so to be super clear about something, Jesus got a whole laundry list, and we ain't got time today to cover all of them. So we ain't going to cover all the different practices that Jesus says you and I need to be about uh, in order to sort of find a truly joyful existence. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three. Three. Three pathways to joy that for the last four or five years I've actually been really, really trying to facilitate and cultivate in my life because, just to be brutally honest, I stink at these. Okay? So I'm going to share the three that I'm the worst at because I've found that in them I found mo the most joy than compared to the life I was living before I made those things a priority in my life. Deal? Sound good? First one is this. The first one actually comes from our very scripture for today. So if you pay attention to John chapter 15, there's another key word that you need to sort of like circle and underline and really uh, like sort of let seep in. Jesus says, great, you want to live a more joyful life? Yes. We, you want to have experience more of it in your system and replace all the you know, pessimism and all of that sort of stuff in your system? Yes, Jesus, we totally do. Great. The first thing you got to learn how to do is abide in me. 
the first pathway to joy that I want to uh, share with you all is, the, is the, the pathway of learning to abide in God's presence, in God's life, as opposed to living your entire life doing everything on your own, doing everything on your own understanding, doing thing, everything, everything on your own strength, never ever caring or even touching base with what God may want to say about what's going on in your job or in your family or in your place in this world. Also, this is where the Greek is helpful. The Greek word here uh, for abide uh, is meno, uh, meno. And uh, it's actually super interesting because if you look at the different places in which it's used in the New Testament, it almost exclusively is used in reference to two or three or, you know, a group of people who are traveling to the same place together. So a contemporary translation of this word of abide would be, you want to experience more joy in this life, caravan with me. Caravan with me, which personally, I like that because that feels like it gets me, there's less pressure in a caravan. Like, if I'm hitched to Jesus, a lot of pressure in that. Like, I got to make sure I'm sort of, like, always turning when he's turning. And of a caravan, like, I can be crushing hot tamales and sort of drifting back and then just be like, oh, yeah, I need to catch up sort of thing. And we're all going in the same direction. That's what Jesus is saying. Travel with me. Caravan with me. Which, quickly, uh, raise of hands. How many of you um, enjoy caravanning? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, so those of you who are watching the live stream, uh, we had two people uh, in this room who were like, yeah, um, yeah kind of, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, so the reason for which is because there's a ton of pressure sometimes when it's trying to keep each other together. And so I also want to do this. We're going to do a social experiment here this morning. When you're in a caravan, raise your hand if you like to lead the caravan. And then in a minute, I'm going to say if you like to follow. So raise your hand if you like to lead the caravan. Like if we're going to be doing this together, I want to be the one with the... Uh, with a GPS and all the various things. Great, okay, now raise your hand if you're like, nah dude, I wanna be just following. This is totally fine, I love that role, that's great, great. Those of you who know the Enneagram, those are all your Enneagram nines, uh, and your sevens, actually, and your sevens, who are just like, bro, just here for the time. This is a great time, got the walkie-talkies, I'm just gonna be making uh, jokes the whole time. Now, <clears throat> we're gonna do a social experiment. I wanna see if this is true. What I've found to be the case is that, so I'm in the first group. I'm in the first group. If I'm doing the caravanning, we're going on my schedule, we're going on my itinerary, we're going on my route, y'all are with me. And what I've found to be true is that oftentimes that, each of those different types of personalities, leading versus following the caravan, sometimes they play out almost directly in regards to our relationships with God, our relationships with this caravanning relationship that Christ calls us to. Check this out. So on this graphic, let's pretend the blue car, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Caravan with me. Ride with me. I'm going to take you into your future. I'm going to show you my will for your life. Group one, the people who like to lead said caravan, oftentimes, maybe not all the time, but oftentimes you're the first red car out ahead of Jesus. These are our control freaks in the room. Uh, these are our, those who've got a lot of plans. We've got an agenda. We go into every single thing with a lot of preferences as to how we want things to go. And so oftentimes, when we're living our lives, when we hear this call to abide, that call to abide is coming from behind us. That in order to abide, it requires us to slow down, speed up, slow down right? Slow down. 
If you're in that first group, you are someone who regularly, this call to abide requires you to cultivate disciplines where you are uh, resting, you are, uh, your prayer life is less talking and more listening. It's actually touching base with God before you make monumental changes to your life to see what God may want to say about the direction of your life, right? So the call to abide is the same, but the practical implications are wildly different. If you're in group one, the call to abide is to slow down. Now, what if you're in group two? What if you're in group two? Again, you got the walkie-talkies, you got the games, you got the snacks, you're just here for the ride, it's wonderful, you're great. For those folks, oftentimes how that translates to our spiritual life is the challenge for us is not to slow down. It's to speed up. What do I mean by that? You know you're in the second group when oftentimes you feel like your relationship with God is calling you to step out in faith, to step up to a challenge that's some, that God has placed on your life. You often find yourself in group two if you are someone who you struggle to see all the incredible gifts that you have to be used for God's kingdom. You struggle to see yourself as possessing any value to this kingdom movement that God possesses. And so for you, the call to abide is not to slow down. It's to speed up. It's to stop playing small. It's to please, please, please stop existing and start living right? It feels only appropriate that here on Father's Day that we share a, a quote from every father's favorite film, Braveheart. <laughs> and there, you get this line. Every man dies, or woman. Every man, woman dies. Every, not everyone lives. Not everyone lives. And so wherever you find yourself in the caravan, the question all of us need to be asking is whenever you find the voice of God entering into your life and asking for attention, asking to be involved, asking to be engaged with your life, and whether that causes you to step up or whether it causes you, uh, uh, it, the, the challenge is to slow down, the biggest question I want you to ask yourself, the question that I want you to wrestle with is oftentimes what we hear when we hear that call to abide is, oh, but like what might I lose if I slow down to hear more of God in my life, or if I step up and step out in faith to trust God, like what might I lose if that happens? But friends, disciples of Jesus, they ask a fundamentally different question. They don't ask, what will I lose? They say, holy cow, what might I gain? What could I gain? What could the world gain if I actually abide with this person I claim to worship, that I believe is transforming the world. For me, as someone who's in group one, that call to slow down, one thing that I've always found to be true is that whenever I rest, I make Sabbath a priority in my life. Do I lose things? Yeah. I lose productivity. I lose, like, oh, my gosh, someone sent me this email, and I can't reply until tomorrow. I don't want them to think that I'm, like, lazy or whatever. So, like, I lose wanting to appear a certain way to a bunch of different people, but you want to know what I gain? I gain an existence that I actually enjoy. One where I'm not burnt out, exhausted, miserable, and lonely all the time. Do I lose stuff? Yeah. 
it pales in comparison to what I've always gained. So I keep doing it. So the first call, the first pathway to finding more joy in this life is to abide. To stop trying to do all this all the time on your own. And to stop living a life for God or for some cause, but with God. Big difference. Big difference. The second one is this. The second uh, practice, the second pathway that I'm really bad at, but I'm trying to get better at, but I've also found a ton of joy in when I make it a priority in my life, is gratitude. Gratitude. Jesus talks a ton about this. He says uh, that whenever we can, we need to resist a greed-filled life and to live instead uh, a more grateful, a more thankful, a more appreciative life of the things that God has given to us and that we already are in possession of. Whenever we have conversations in the church about greed, I think it's so, uh, it's, it's normal, it's our natural inclinations when we think about greed, we always think about money. We're always like, oh yeah, this is, sure, we understand that's wrong, whatever. But it's really, really important to point out that when Jesus talks about greed, he's talking about anything that you have a relationship with where your constant sort of refrain in your mind is more, more, more. I need more friends. I need more people to like me. I need more accomplishments and trophies. I need more uh, experiences. I need more whatever. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. You can go to the next slide. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. All kinds. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That gratitude is one of the clearest, most direct highways to experiencing more joy in this life. I found this out um, practically in my own life two weeks ago when I went to PetSmart. So I had a God moment up in that PetSmart a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mind you, uh, we, we don't actually have any animals. We don't have any pets. Um, but the reason I went there is because oftentimes when I took my kids there, I could show them around a little bit and satisfy their desperate desire for an animal. And then we could go home, and then I could, I'd have like six more months of that before I had to take them back to PetSmart. But now it's switched. Now it's enhancing it. Now it's raising it. And so now the conversations when we leave there in the parking lot are like, so we're getting a pet like tomorrow? Or like, what's happening? I'm like, uh, no. Anyway, so had me a God moment up in that PetSmart uh, while I was trying to uh, manipulate my children. And so we're walking around aisle to aisle, passing the goldfish and the guinea pigs and the ferrets, which are like a rat and a squirrel mixed together. Sweet Lord. Um, <laughs> Who was the first person who was like, pet? Yeah, live in the wild, eats fingers, but yeah, we'll have as a pet. Anyway, we're walking around, and we come up on the dog aisle, and I see this. How many of you have seen this before? All right, who knows what this is? Who knows what this is? What is it, Brittany? Great. For those of you who don't know what this is or you don't own animals, this is a dog bowl that is created to slow down your dog's eating. And I love, love, love how they advertise it to you. So when you read the box, it's like, is your animal not savoring its meal? Is it not taking time to really enjoy its breakfast and lunch? We have a solution for you. Let's just be totally honest, okay? Let's be totally honest. The person who invented that their dog was eating so fast and throwing up all over the kitchen that they were like, forget that, we're creating this, and this problem is solved, right? This is what's going on. This is what's going on. So I'm walking through, I see this thing, and I'm laughing it off, and I'm walking back to my car, and I have this moment where I was like, 
gosh, like, I as a human being need things like this to slow me down, to not end up living an existence where I don't savor anything because I'm just always on to the next thing, on to the next thing. On to the next thing. Oh, that vacation was fun. Let's plan the next one. Oh, that was cool celebration. We did this really cool thing at work. We accomplished this big feat. What's the next one? Gratitude is the way in which you and I are protected from a life of only solving the issues to actually savoring the different things that come your way. Really quickly, while you're here in worship today, just do a quick inventory of this past week. Did you spend more time savoring the good things in your life? Savoring time you had with a loved one? Savoring a really cool thing at work? Or a really cool conversation with a friend? Or you're out in nature experiencing the beauty of it all? Did you spend more time savoring this past week? Or did you spend way more time solving all of the problems currently going on in your life, or that could happen, that might happen, that maybe might happen, that probably won't happen, but got to be prepared. What's your existence been like lately? And if you spend way more time solving your life than savoring it, there's a, probably a good, clear indicator that we need to find, make some room for gratitude in our existence again. Whatever that looks like for you. Whatever that looks like for you. Maybe for you, it's, you know, those gratitude journals and those, like, people on Instagram that are like, let's have five minutes of just thanking the universe for all the wonderful. Like, maybe that's you and maybe that's your thing. Maybe for you, it's, it's finding a mantra. So for me, it's, there's a mantra that I repeat to myself all the time when something good is happening. And it comes from, it's not mine, I borrowed it from John Acuff. John Acuff's one of my favorite authors and he says this. He says, what I've found is that being present is learning how to be nostalgic about the moment you're in right now. Isn't that beautiful? Being present, being grateful, is learning how to be nostalgic about the moment you're in right now. That you're in, in this precise moment. Because again, the alternative is I reach the end of my life and I just waited for joy. Never stopped and looked for it. Never stopped and appreciated it. I spent my entire life searching for something that was sitting in the passenger seat next to me the whole daggum time. The final one is this. The final one I want to share with you, the final pathway, uh, that if you uh, are someone like the person who sent this question in, He's trying to figure out what would Jesus say about where and how to encounter and find more joy in this life. The third one is actually not so obvious. The third pathway that I've found to be true that cultivates more joy in my life is resilience. Again, it doesn't seem as obvious at first, but the people who've experienced the most joy, the people who are just emitting the most joy in life are some of the most resilient persistent people I've ever met. Jesus says this too. In the chapter after this one, after John 15, John 16 says this, very truly I tell you, you'll weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You'll have pain, but your pain will turn to joy. 
it's similar, it's similar to what society and what culture says. You know, culture says good things happen to those who wait. Scripture is a little bit, has a slightly different take on that. It says good things come to those who endure. What's the difference? Endurance is fighting while you wait. It's refusing to quit while you wait. It's refusing to quit on the possibility that some beautiful, wonderful, hope-filled things might just be right around the corner. And if not in this life, definitely in the one to come. But this is something that we as human beings, we don't do. We don't see. We're so quick to bail the moment it gets hard. Check this out. These stats blew my mind. Blew my mind. So on the job front, on the uh, sort of occupational front, uh, did you know that the Labor Bureau did a study and found that the average tenure of an American worker in any job, any job, the average tenure is four years. The average American works in a job for four years, gets hard, doesn't really know what to do with it, and then moves. Guess what? Same exact thing is true for pastors. The average tenure, not just in Methodism, but across the denominational spectrum, the average tenure of a pastor in a church is four years. Now, here's the thing that's going to just blow your mind. You wonder, so yeah, that same study, they did a research, and they asked pastors who stayed longer than four years, and said, what, 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 like, what was the sweet spot? When did you really start enjoying your job and really feel like you were like hitting a groove and you were having a lot of fun and doing good stuff in the world? And the average sweet spot for pastors who suffer from this same dynamic was years five through eight. We bail right before it gets good. Same thing with marriages. A study found that uh, in America, uh, the average marriage in America, in the United States, lasts eight years. That's because of the, uh, how many of you have heard of the seven-year itch, right? Seven-year itch. Seven years in is when you start to... um, all the things that you thought were wonderful and cute in year one and two uh, now drive you in, uh, insane. So you're like, oh, that's so cute. He just leaves like the dishes and she leaves the dishes out. Like, <laughs> And then year eight, you're like, <laughs> year eight is when you got to shift, right? You got to learn what this new thing looks like, what your life now looks like. And oftentimes, we bail. And what's fascinating, same study, asked a bunch of different married couples of all types and said, hey, so when, when did you feel like it was getting good? Like, when did you feel like you were hitting your sweet spot and things were getting, you're, you're enjoying it a whole lot more? And over and over and over again, the consensus was years 10 through 15. Again, we bail right before it gets good. And we say the same thing with, like, New Year's resolutions and health kicks. Did you know that uh, anyone, the average person who makes a health plan, like, on January 1st, okay, I'm going to get back in better shape, and I'm going to eat right, and that sort of thing, the average duration of that is 32 days. Forget P90X, P30X, okay? 30 days. I'll give you that. I'm done. But what's so shocking, same study found that those who stuck with it, the people who... Uh, felt the most encouragement. They started seeing results. They started feeling healthier. They didn't start feeling that way until day 60. We quit at the one-month mark. 
failing to realize that if we just lasted one more month, we would have really started to enjoy this new life that we were living. Raise your hand, seriously, raise your hand, if in the last couple of months you've gone through anything that was hard, anything that was hard. Look around the room. You can't see this online. Most hands are up. And what if I told you, what if I told you in the midst of your hardship that, go ahead and put it up there, Jacob. Well, this is what your brain says. This is what your brain says. Your brain says when you're going through hardship, when you're going through something really, really challenging, really, really difficult, what your brain says is, it's going to last forever. There's never going to be any hope. It's never going to change. You're always going to have this problem for the rest of eternity. I don't know why it talks like this, but it does. But what if I told you? What if it was possible? What if what all those stats are meant to share with us and remind us of? Is that oftentimes when we're reaching just about the end of what we can endure, this is actually what's about to go down. What if we bail almost all the time, right before it's getting good? And so friends, I'll close here. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. If that's true, if that's true, then it's not a question anymore of how do I avoid hardship or avoid difficult or challenging things. It's which ones am I going to inhabit? How many of you saw this? This was on social media a couple of years ago. It was circulated on a lot of like uh, Instagram and social media, uh, uh, Facebook platforms. Uh, there's a little article called Choose Your Hard. How many, raise your hand if you saw this, you read this. Now, a couple years ago when I saw this, um, I'll be honest, I had mixed emotions about it. I had mixed emotions about it, right? So like I liked different parts of it and I didn't like different parts of it. For example, I didn't like the parts that made it seem as if marriage is hard, divorce is hard, choose your hard. Like, some relationships, it ain't that black and white. Like, it ain't that simple. Relationships are made up of two people. And so you can toil and work your butt off to save a marriage, but if the other person ain't in it with you, that's not your fault. You didn't bail. You didn't take the easy road out. The second one, obesity is hard. Being fit is hard. Choose your hard. Some of us have medical conditions. We have different things that we've experienced in life that prohibit us from being in the exact status of health we wish to be in. So not being that doesn't mean we took the easy way out, we bailed, we quit. And so, to be, true, to be clear, there's things I liked about it, things I didn't like about it, which, sidebar, can we please just have dialogue like that about the things that you disagree with and you find offensive in this life? Can we just sort of like, when you encounter things online and when you encounter things in the world that you don't agree with 100%, if it's not 100% applicable to you, let's not be the people anymore who are like, well, 99% of it was good, but there was this one word that didn't apply to me, and so, boom, I'm never going to read it, and we should never have any use for it. Like, let's be intelligent beings enough to say, okay, there's some of these things that are applicable to me and there are other things I need to take with a grain of salt. Deal? Can we do that, please, for the love of God? Because if you did that with this, you missed out what I believe to be the be most beautiful part of this, which was just a reminder that universally life is hard. 
And guess what? This goes for both the good things and the bad things. Every good and perfect gift I've ever been given from God required things of me that made me angry, mad, frustrated, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Every single good thing that will come your way, it'll require something of you. You'll have to work at it. You'll have to get your hands dirty with it. And so when it's possible, it's not always possible, but when it's possible, you know what the goal is? It's to choose the hard things that lead to joy. Where there's something beautiful and wonderful potentially on the other side. Now, are you guaranteed that it's going to come? Well, how do I make sure I pick and choose? Like, which things are, I'm going to get guaranteed good things. Sorry, can't do that. But when it's possible, where it's clear, choose the things where the work, the hardship, the toil, it leads to something good. Because bailing on it might be equally, if not more hard, and it leaves you somewhere you don't want to be. Now, some of you came into worship today and you're like, that sounds wonderful in theory. But if I can be honest, even just hearing the words, choose your heart or choose the thing that's hard but good, like, is exhausting to me because I'm empty. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you listening to this online. Maybe you are going through a season of life where you ain't got nothing left. You're walking in here today, you're like, I would love to choose the, the, the joyful hardship the, instead of the, the, the not so joyful hardship, but I, like, I'm just out of gas. Like, Kyle, you don't understand. Like, you don't know what I've been through the last couple days. You don't know what I've been through the last couple weeks or the last couple months or the last couple years. Like, you don't know what this did to me. And so like, I want what God wants and yet I don't have it within me to do so. I can't even summon the energy to do so. But here's the good news. If that's you, you're in the right place. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. You're in the presence of the very one that you're supposed to go to when you ain't got nothing left when you want joy, but you can't summon it from even a single ounce of your bones, you are coming to the source of goodness. The source of joy. And I love this so much. That's exactly what Jesus' main point is here. One more time, let's go back to John chapter 15. That's his main point in telling this whole parable. He's saying, verse 4, if you will remain in me, if you abide in me, if you can just Stay on the same road, like caravan with me. Stick close enough to me. I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. He's talking about vineyards. He's talking about grapes. He's talking about vines. You want to know how long a grape can last uh, after it gets severed from the vine? This is with uh, refrigerating. Three weeks. That's all it's got. Three weeks. Very similarly, maybe for you, you've been like, man, I'd, it's been longer than three weeks. I, I haven't been tending to my soul. I haven't been tending to my relationship with God. I haven't been even abiding or even looking in God's direction, and, 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 and now I'm empty. 
now I'm shriveled up and I, I got nothing left. And again, friends, the good news is if that's you, when that's you, you're in the right place. And you're with the right one. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.